This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to the second movie of our month of journalism movies with His Girl Friday from 1940, directed by Howard Hawks, written by Ben Hecht and Charles Lederer, starring Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell. His Girl Friday was number 19 on the AFI's 100 Years 100 Laughs and was selected in 1993 for preservation in the United States National Film Registry. So let's start here, Dad. Having played one famously in two movies we've already discussed, The Philadelphia Story and North by Northwest, what is it that makes Cary Grant such an effective, scummy (laughs) ex-husband? I don't know. He's got this suaveness about him, but at the same time, he also has this wry look like he's up to mischief. Okay, I think I'm going to end up coining a phrase, but he has a charismatic smarminess to him. Yes, I can I, I can see that. It's just borderline between being offensive and being endearing. See, I've seen some of his earlier works, like Gunga Din, which he did with Ray Milan and, and Robert Preston, and he's kind of that way. He's kind of almost frat boyish. Well, it's a little bit different of a departure from the movie he famously did just before this, I believe, in Bringing Up Baby from 38, where he's kind of more a bumbling idiot at times. He just seems like he's lost in comparison to the whimsical nature of Catherine Hepburn in that movie. You have to understand, he started in comedy, which was he was the um, he was discovered on the lot by may west and when may west says hey big boy come up and see me sometime she's saying that to Cary grant and so he had a certain comic timing so another thing i noticed about this particular movie is that like other journalism movies there seems to be a staple of every journalism movie and it may be the reason why i love them There's this downhill momentum they all seem to have when they really get going on a story. How accurate do you think that is to actual journalism? (laughs) I I actually don't know. I'm not sure. Journalism, I would say, has changed through the years. Because, I mean, we started with newspapers, then it went on to radio, then to television, now the internet. So I don't know because I think each medium is different. You'll have some people who transcended those, like Walter Winchell started out as a TV person and then, or excuse me, a a newspaper writer and then converted over and became a radio celebrity. Howard Cosell was a newspaper journalist and then converted over to television. And so they brought a style from the news journalism aspect of their profession into a different medium, and it made them somewhat more unique. Well, what I specifically mean when I say this, there's a scene in this movie where 
you see both Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell. Rosalind. I'm not hearing a difference. It's Rosalind, not Rosalind. Again, not hearing a difference. Okay. Anyway, the point being that when they are together in the room really kind of writing a story and they're sinking their teeth into something that just gives them a certain level of energy and excitement. And it is reflected in the way that I see something like we a movie we previously covered, All the President's Men, when they get a really good tip or there's a new piece of evidence that comes to light and all of a sudden they just have this like exuberance about them. And it that's why these movies seem to work well is that they have this type of momentum and that moves forward. Now, I know that comparatively, I've heard many different journalists, actual journalists and not the entertainers that we talked about last week, say that there is a lot of minutia to just actual journalism that's not reflective of these movies, that you go into these careers thinking it's going to be this exciting, entertaining profession, whereas a lot of it's just asking questions over and over and over, and maybe one day you'll find some small tidbit that'll lead you to the next thing, but you have to wait so far and wade through so much information between these moments that it doesn't have the same type of momentum that is reflective in, in these movies, but it somehow works so well on screen. Well, and I've said that. Back when I was just starting practicing, people would talk to me about being a lawyer. I would always comment that being a lawyer is nothing like L.A. Law or Boston Legal or any of those shows. It's not all about running to court, having some epiphany, making some stellar argument, uh, and then going off to the bar, maybe shacking up with a, uh, somebody on your way back home. It's not like that. They don't talk about the little subtleties. The fact that you have to sit in court and wait for your case to be called for an hour, and you have nothing to do, so you bring magazines and books along to read while you're waiting, or work to do at the at the conference table, in the jury room sometimes. The same can be said with newspaper people, because newspaper people, they start out, they work the, the city desk, they're dealing with uh, some resolution to adopt or to hire a particular vendor to do the trash pickup. That's where you start. Uh, then you maybe get something really salacious, like you have to write the obits. And yes, this is romanticized. I mean, does this happen once in a while? Yes. Is it common? No. I think that if people lived this type of life, they'd be burned out within 10 years. So what is your relationship to this movie? I don't have one. I had never seen the movie. I had heard of it, but I've never watched it. And that's the end of my relationship. Other than the fact that I knew Cary Grant did it, and that it was a Howard Hawks film beforehand. That's about it. I didn't even know Rosalind Russell had been in it or who else had been in it, like Ralph Bellamy. So I didn't have one. Well, this is only my second time viewing it, but I think it's the first time that I didn't fall asleep. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that I watched it like right after my surgery, but I was so knocked out on drugs that I think I fell asleep for half of it and then just never bothered to go back and watch it. I see. This is not a movie you can fall asleep to. We'll get back to that when we get to rewatchability. 
Well, the the cadence in this is almost like listening to a typewriter. So then lastly, what is this movie actually about? It's based on the front page, which was a play, which was about newspaper guys. But I think Howard Hawks transformed this more into a story that also encompasses male-female relationships and a level of professionalism of what it is to be somebody motivated by their job and how those interplay with your normal life and they become tied as one facet where one bleeds into the other. Well, I'll take my own stab at it. I really thought that it had a lot to do with identity. I think going back to the original stage play, the majority of the action is around the owner, in this case Walter, trying to convince that person, whether they were male or female, and in the stage play they are male, in this particular version they're female, to stay at their job because they don't feel that they would be as fulfilled making a home as they would being a newspaperman. And that at a certain point, how far can you really run away from your own identity or the things that you believe about yourself? Because even she, when she tries to deny it, when she says she's retiring, she tries to quit and walks out the door and then something happens and she just jumps on instinct right back into what she's always done. I agree. I mean, I've, I've been going through that just around my area, dealing with all the lawyers that were here when I moved here 24, 28, 28 years ago, how none of them can seem to hang it up. And it's not because they need the money. It's because being a lawyer and practicing law is so much part of them that to retire, you have nothing else. You don't have an identity outside of that and you would lose so much of yourself that I think it would be difficult for some of them to continue to find a reason to get up in the morning and to progress throughout the day. Well, I think we talked about it last night that you could never give up your license. Even if you're not practicing, it's so much of what's determined what your identity is as a human being for the last 30 plus years. Yes, and quite frankly, I worked very hard to get that degree. I sacrificed a lot, and I've done a lot to maintain that license, and I have no interest in ever giving it up. In fact, you could probably put, if not the diploma, at least my admission to the Wisconsin bar in my coffin, because that's the only way it's going to die, is by being buried with me. It's an interesting notion. But let's dig further into this movie. Do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. New York newspaper editor Walter Burns, Cary Grant, runs his paper with pluck and on an ethical edge. When he discovers that his ex-wife, investigative reporter Hildy Johnson, Rosalind Russell, has gotten engaged to a milk-toast insurance agent, Bruce Baldwin, Ralph Bellamy, he tries to lure her away from her impending wedding with a story about the imminent execution of a convicted murderer, with tactics to both entice Hildy to cover the story and to neutralize Bruce, Burns has the story, the press room, and the city government buzzing. Will Hildy adopt domestic bliss, or will the lore of the newsroom pull her back? Thank you. Cast for this movie: K. 
Cary Grant as Walter Burns, Rosalind Russell as Hildy Johnson, Ralph Bellamy as Bruce Baldwin, Gene Lockhart as Sheriff Hartwell, Clarence Cobe as the mayor, Abner Biberman as Louie, Frank Orth as Duffy, John Quaylen as Earl Williams, Helen Mack as Molly Malloy, Alma Kruger as Mrs. Baldwin, and Billy Gilbert as Joe Pettibone. Recognition for this movie? His Girl Friday was released on January 18, 1940. The screenplay was adapted from the 1928 play The Front Page by Ben Hecht and Charles MacArthur. This was the second time the play had been adapted for the screen, the first occasion being the 1931 film which kept the original title The Front Page. The Front Page was remade again in a 1974 Billy Wilder movie starring Walter Matthau as Walter Burns, Jack Lemmon as Hildy Johnson, and Susan Sarandon as his fiancé. In 2000, His Girl Friday was ranked 19th on the American Film Institute's 100 Years, 100 Laughs. Rosalind Russell's performance as Hildy Johnson was cited as the model for the character of Lois Lane in the Superman franchise. In 1993, it was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry. In the 2012 Sight and Sound poll of the greatest films of all time, His Girl Friday appeared on several lists, including those of critic David Thompson and director Quentin Tarantino. His Girl Friday currently holds a 99% rating among critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a 4 out of 5 rating on Letterboxd. Did you know? One of the first films, preceded by Stage Door from 1937, to have characters talk over the lines of other characters for a more realistic sound. Prior to this, movie characters completed their lines before the next lines were started. Did you know? It is estimated that the normal rate of verbal dialogue in most films is around 90 words a minute. In His Girl Friday, the delivery has been clocked at 240 words a minute. Did you know? To maintain the fast pace, Howard Hawks encouraged his cast to add dialogue and funny bits of business and step on each other's lines whenever possible. Did you know? Rosalind Russell thought, while shooting, that she didn't have as many good lines as Cary Grant had, so she hired an advertisement writer through her brother-in-law and had him write more clever lines for the dialogue. Since Howard Hawks allowed for spontaneity and ad-libbing, he and many of the cast and crew didn't notice it. But Grant knew she was up to something, leading him to greet her every morning with, What have you got today? Did you know? The famous in-joke about Ralph Bellamy's character, There's a guy in a taxi down at the court building, looks just like that movie star, what's his name? Ralph Bellamy was almost left on the cutting room floor. Harry Cohn, the studio head, saw the dailies and responded in a fury at the impertinence, but he let Howard Hawks leave it in, and it has always been one of the biggest laughs in the film. According to Ralph Bellamy, the line was ad-libbed by Cary Grant. Did you know? Ginger Rogers wrote that she was offered the role of Hildy Johnson. She read the script, but this was before Cary Grant was cast, and she turned it down. After learning that Grant was cast, she regretted it. Did you know? To capture the film's fast-paced dialogue clearly, Howard Hawks decided to use multiple microphones rather than one overhead boom mic. Since the microphones couldn't be turned on simultaneously, a sound technician had to switch from mic to mic on cue. Some scenes required as many as 35 switches. Did you know? In addition to casting Hildy as a female reporter and editor, the city room of the Morning Post had half a dozen other women sitting at reporters' desks. 
1940 film, this was an extraordinary number for what was then an overwhelmingly male profession. Did you know? A Girl Friday is an assistant who carries out a variety of chores. The name alludes to Friday, Robinson Crusoe's native male dog's body in Daniel Defoe's novel. According to the Merriam-Webster's definition, however, the term was first used in 1940, the year the film was released. And with that, we'll take our first break, and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week we will be discussing the third film in our Journalism Month with Network from 1976, directed by Sidney Lumet, written by Patty Chayefsky, and starring Faye Dunaway, Peter Finch, William Holden, and Ned Beatty. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. All right, Dad, best performance. Cary Grant. The part and he are so wedded. He just, the swarminess, I guess, is your term. Smarmy. Smarmy. Swarmy is very different. Ah. He just has that look. And the fact that he was able to say those lines so rapidly and precisely... I just thought it was really a well-groomed performance. So I went with Rosalind Russell. She's also my most charismatic. I thought she really carried significant portions of the film, partly because I think I just simply liked her character more than Cary Grant. I liked her headstrong abilities, her ability to separate herself from Cary Grant, who to most people would be sucked into his charisma and she seemed to be adverse to his charms up until the end. And the way that she could comport herself in most situations, be calm yet assertive, and seemed to be easily one of the better people at her profession, despite her wanting to be outside this profession. She just seemed like the most confident and capable character in the movie to me on a regular basis, whereas Cary Grant's doing a lot of mischievous conniving. He just seems like he's the coyote to her roadrunner. Okay, except this coyote won in the end. Only because he kind of turned the plans around. It's like if the coyote stopped trying, and then the roadrunner just came up to him and said, here, put me on a plate. Yeah, that happens a lot. Oh? I'm being facetious. I see. Okay, I didn't know if you had something more expansive upon that, but okay. No. Best secondary performance, I went with Howard Hawks. I don't think it's a small achievement the way that this movie is structured and paced, and particularly with the dialogue and all of the overlapping stuff from a technical aspect alone, which will be reflected in my scores later on. I think this is an impressive feat for the time, But, I mean, realistically, if you're dealing with the tech that they had at that time and you don't have all the advanced sound mixing equipment that we have nowadays, it would be incredibly difficult to do this just ordinarily. But then doing this pacing and the dialogue and having people step on each other but not having it be a contentious relationship and it it seemed to work out fairly well. I think you have to have some real skills as a director to be able to organize and coordinate that level of actor machismo, maybe egoism, without 
everybody stepping on each other and causing more problems than you're actually putting forward solutions. And so I think from all of the things that he did to develop this script and then throw in the fact that he really pushed to change the character to a, or the primary character to a female led movie, I think it speaks volumes for why this movie was different than the stage play and I think has become more classic than the stage play or any of the subsequent remakes with two male characters. I also went with Howard Hawks, but based primarily on just the pacing and the editing and the overseeing of the scripts and how it was being performed and done. I mean, it's just phenomenal how he managed to hold that whole thing together to make it tight, compact. It's... It never lost momentum. Yeah, and I was going to say, it's like it's one fluid stroke. And, and when I was th- I was thinking about it, of it's hard to even chop this into scenes as we get to that because it's just one fluid thing after another. At best, you have the storyline continues from spot to spot, and the only thing that changes is the backdrop. Yeah, I guess I could see that. I think that it's easier to develop specific scenes earlier on when there is a change of scenery. But once you get into the press room, it really was a lot more difficult between certain actions or major actions within the play itself. It really does become a one-room play for about the last two-thirds of the movie. There are only three rooms. Walter's office, the restaurant, and the press room. Yeah. I mean, you could say the lobby of the newspaper, but that's more or less just a small transition in between certain things. Yes. There is the one jail cell room as well where she does the interview, but that's kind of a cutaway more more or less as opposed to anything that had any length or depth to it. True. I mean, you could eliminate those and it wouldn't matter because she could have just summarized what the interview was. It would have had just as much effect. So you're most charismatic then? I had Rosalind Russell. She was able to convey a very strong, dynamic personality in a time where the female leads were not always strong and dynamic. I mean, we had some. Mae West, Barbara Stanwyck. Catherine Hepburn. Catherine Hepburn. But... uh, The roles or the available roles for that type of character were not just flowing out of Hollywood at that time. So to take a part and to make it, I I actually perceive that she made the part more robust, more domineering, more dominant than it probably was originally envisioned and made it placing her at or above Walter as far as the pecking order of strong personalities in the film. Yeah, that was the thing that I was most impressed by, is is that she didn't seem to be a subordinate in any way. She seemed to almost in many ways be his superior, even though he's trying to do all of these manipulative activities. And you think to a certain extent that he has the upper hand at times in the movie. She seems to see right through most of those, and thus be on equal footing with him throughout. There's a lot of repartee, tit for tat between the two of them as they go along. And so it really does seem like almost a co-led production. Let's go to best scene then. 
I tried my best to come up with the best way to separate all of these. As we mentioned a, a second ago, it's a little bit more difficult as you get into the press room for the last roughly two-thirds of the film. But Hildy tells Walter, so that'd be pretty much the opening scene in his office, Walter takes Hildy and Bruce to lunch, so the restaurant. Then I tried my best, and we'll see how I do, but Hildy back in the press room, so when she first comes back in. Bruce in jail, when he's first arrested for allegedly stealing the watch. Williams escapes. Williams holds Hildy hostage, which is him coming through the window and then holding her at gunpoint. The reprieve delivery, which is the first scene with Mr. Pettibone, where you really realize how crooked the mayor and the sheriff are. Sheriff Pete finds Williams, so when Cary Grant accidentally knocks on the desk three times. And then the resolution. So I would say that's both the reprieve delivery and they get out of trouble, and also the resolution of Hildy's, I, I guess, love triangle, more or less? Yes. Did I miss any? No. So what do you think is the best scene, then? I think it's the scene leading up to the escape. I, I, I love the, the interplay of the reporters and how they're covering the stories. And I think likely that kind of interplay and that teasing, that banter does exist. I've seen a lot of professionals where type, that type of banter goes on on a regular basis. So I just thought it was well done and very believable. So I actually put kind of in along the same lines, but really once the escape happens, and I mentioned it before when we were talking about kind of the momentum of some of these films, these journalism films, there seems to be between when he escapes and then holds her hostage, this just inertia that takes over the movie. And it's done with the preamble where you are waiting for whatever main action is supposed to happen. And then it kind of just shoots off and now you get the kind of downhill thrust of the last part of the movie until you reach its climax. To me, when she is just about out the door and then somebody barges in that Williams has escaped and you just see that kind of take over her. I think that's probably the best part of the movie for me up through where he comes through the window and holds her hostage. And there's obviously the kind of gunfight, if you will, between the two of them until he ends up in the desk. I think that's probably the best, maybe five, 10 minute stretch of the movie for me. So then favorite scene is also my most indelible moment, and it's the resolution. I think that the tension that's built up through this, all of the screwball comedy has to come to a head, and it's going to be the thing that I remember the most, is for as headstrong and confident and independent as Hildy wants to be throughout the movie, all of this is somehow an act where really all she really wanted was Walter's attention. Okay, I'm not quite sure about that. I'm not sure that that's all she wanted. But as far as favorite scene, I like the whole portion of the film where he's hiding in the desk and the other reporters are trying to figure out what's going on around them and what's happening. And the scene, and this is what my most indelible moment, is when Bruce's uh, mother comes in and they end up, carrying her out 
of the press room so she doesn't spill the beans, more or less. And uh, I, I thought that was a great scene as far as humor. And uh, I will always remember her basically being thrown over his shoulder and carried out. There's so many times that I wish there were people who would just do that. But Well, that seems like a good spot for our second break. We'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, you can still sign up for our newsletter at thenewronnieduncanstudios.com. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at gmodepodcast, or find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast. All right, Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes, unfortunately. Eileen Ryan, 94, American actress. Magnolia, Parenthood, Ben and June, actress. I mean, we did Parenthood, what, three or four episodes ago? And she was uh, the mother to uh, the children, Jason Robard's wife in that film, and uh, was the mother of or the matriarch of a acting and entertainment dynasty. Yes, I think she's most commonly known because of her famous sons, but specifically composer Michael Penn and actor Chris Penn, but most notably Sean Penn, the multiple-time Oscar-winning actor. She's been around Hollywood for a very, very long time. She's been in a ton of different movies. I'm sure people would recognize her if they saw her, but obviously a very good and long career. Uh, We also lost Judy Tenuta, 72. She was an American comedian, actress, and musician. She did the uh, Weird Al show and going down in La La Land, and there's no such thing as vampires. She was the Comedy Club Female Comic of the Year for the year 1987, opposite the, at the time, Comedy Club Male Comic of the Year from 1987, which happened to be Jerry Seinfeld. She was also nominated for two Grammy Awards for two different comedy albums, and she was a fairly known commodity within uh, comedy in the 80s with a lot of unique outfits and playing the accordion. So she fit in very well with Weird Al. Yes. Ken Barkas, 67, American journalist and editor with NPR. Not extremely well known, but he was somebody who um, was a regular contributor on NPR covering stories. I think he was very influential within the NPR structure, and as far as training a lot of the people that are the journalists of today that are still maybe there, there were a lot of tributes on the NPR website to his passing. He most notably was the Midwestern, I think, bureau chief, and really was very protective of the Midwest. I think one of the comments or quotes that I saw from him in one of the stories that I was reading happened to be that he wanted to make most normal journalists that are on the coasts choke on the words flyover country or anything that would be disparaging towards the Midwest. He always felt a very protectorate state over what was happening in middle America. And so I think for anybody that lives here in in the Midwest or in quote-unquote flyover country, we should be very grateful to somebody that was protective of our stories. We lost Anne Flood, 87, uh, American actress, The Edge of uh, Night, and From These Roots. 
She was also in the movie Mystic Pizza, which launched a few careers. She was most notable for all of her soap opera work during particularly the 80s. I know that she was very beloved for a couple of the shows that she was on. Art LeBeau, 97, was an American DJ. The Oldies But Goodies compilation album. He was on the radio in Southern California for over 70 years. And one of the first DJs to play rock and roll music on the West Coast. One of the things that I was reading in the obituary that's attached on the website is that he was willing in a way that other DJs were not of the time to play the music that the audience was requesting. And more often than not, he would go to these drive-ins or these places where kids would hang out because the radio was for them and let them bring their albums. And more often than not, it was black artists and rock and roll and R&B music that they were bringing to him. And he was willing to play that even at the weird hours of the morning and the evening that he was on the radio. Eventually, he became a staple of Southern California radio. And obviously, being there for over 70 years, he had an outsized influence in a way that I don't think many people would have had. Uh, He did trademark the phrase oldies but goodies as a staple of his radio show that he eventually combined into that compilation album. But I'm sure much like several voices of Southern California life, he will be greatly missed. Unfortunately, last on our list is Dame Angela Lansbury. She was 96. Irish, British, American actress and singer. Multiple Academy Award nominee and winner. A Manchurian candidate, Sweeney Todd. And she is known to a more recent generation for being the star of a television show, Murder, She Wrote. So I need to make a correction. She did not win an Oscar. She was a three-time nominee. Correct. I misspoke. So she won five different Tonys. She was nominated 12 times for an Emmy, primarily for Murder, She Wrote. And she was a three-time Oscar nominee, including her breakout role of a movie that has been on my list forever, particularly given its outsized influence as a verb used since about 2016, Gaslight, where she apparently played a Cockney-accented maid in that one. That was her first Oscar nomination. She also received one for The Portrait of Dorian Gray two years later that really cemented her place in the late 1940s and I think the MGM studio contracts of of the time. But for me, having never seen an episode of Murder, She Wrote, although I knew of her from that, my really only experience with her is one of two things. One, as Mrs. Potts from the Beauty and the Beast, where she sang the title song. But it's either that or as probably the worst mother in the history of mothers on screen in the Manchurian Candidate. She is evil incarnate. She is the devil, and it is awesome. I honestly, I was bowled over with how good she was in that movie. I don't think the movie is necessarily the greatest, but if you have a chance just to see that performance, and especially in honor of her passing, I would just to go back and watch how great she is in that movie, because she is one of the most awful people ever. Interestingly, one of her best friends was B. Arthur, and that goes back from their days performing anti-mame on Broadway. At Christmas, it's become more of a popular song from anti-mame about uh, roll out the 
or the Bows, and I can't remember the exact song, but that's Angela Lansbury and B. Arthur singing that from the Broadway play. And they were lifelong friends until B. Arthur's passing a few years ago. And she had a, a wide range of acting credits. One of the other things I should probably mention, and I saw some people mention it like on Twitter and such, and it's really from the generation between yours and mine, but kids that grew up on the Disney movie Bedknobs and Broomsticks as well. She was one of the title characters, and I think there are a lot of people that know her primarily from that. But obviously somebody with a long career that did a lot of different things and affected people in many, many ways. I mean, there if she's doing stuff in the 40s all the way up through the 90s, and she would come back, it seems, once every 10 years to do something that the next generation would remember her for, obviously a career worth celebrating in this moment. So with that, we recognize all of those that have passed for their contributions and their efforts with a moment of silence here in their honor. Thank you. All right, Dad, let's move to best funniest lines. I'll do the obvious one here first. Evangeline, what does he look like? Walter, he looks like that fellow in the movies. You know, Ralph Bellamy. This is a series of these. Sheriff Hartwell, aiding an escaped criminal and a little charge of kidnapping. Fred the mayor, well, looks like about 10 years apiece for you two birds. Walter. Does it? Hildy, if you think you've got the morning post licked, it's time for you to get out of town. Fred the mayor, whistling in the dark. Well, that ain't going to help you this time. You're through. Walter, listen, the last man that said that to me was Archie Leach, just before he cut his own throat. And Archie Leach is the real name of Cary Grant. Hildy, Walter, you're wonderful in a loathsome sort of way. Walter, Take Hitler and stick him on the funny page. Walter, look, Hildy, I only acted like a husband that didn't want to see his home broken up. Hildy, what home? Walter, what home? Don't you remember the home I promised you? Walter, you've got an old-fashioned idea. Divorce is something that lasts forever, till death do us part. Why, divorce doesn't mean anything nowadays, Hildy. Just a few words mumbled over you by a judge. Walter, what do you think I am, a crook? Hildy, yes. Hildy, he forgets the office when he's with me. He doesn't treat me like an errand boy either, Walter. He treats me like a woman. Walter, oh, he does, does he? Hmm, how did I treat you, like a water buffalo? Walter, diabetes? I ought to know better than to hire anybody with a disease. Walter, Hey, Duffy, listen, is there any way we can stop the four o'clock train to Albany from leaving town? Duffy, we might dynamite it. Walter, could we? Hildy, Walter, Walter, what? Hildy, the mayor's first wife, what was her name? You mean the one with the war on her right, Fanny? Hildy, the paper's going to have to get along without me. So are you. It just won't work out, Walter. Well, it would have worked out if you had been satisfied with just being editor and reporter. But not you. You had to marry me. Spoil everything. Walter, sort of wish you hadn't done that, Hildy. Hildy, done what? Divorced me. 
makes a fellow lose all faith in himself, gives him a almost gives him a feeling he wasn't wanted. Oh, now look, Junior, that's what divorces are for. I'm out. I have one last one. Hildy, there's an old newspaper superstition that the first big check you get, you put in the lining of your hat. In your hat, it brings good luck. Murphy, I've been a reporter for 20 years. I've never heard that before. Hildy, neither did I. All right. You ready to go to the Stanley rubric? I am. You want to go first or second? Uh, Go ahead. So from a legacy standpoint, I would say that the sound mixing and the dialogue add significantly to the industry side of things. From a technical standpoint, I think you're talking about some very advanced techniques that were probably carried forward. And now, obviously, they're obsolete. But just from the standpoint of what it did at the time to promote moving that forward and what you could potentially do, expanding the regiment of what was possible, I think has a significant place. So I do think it has a place in the industry's heart. I'm just not sure it's in the public's. While the phrase, His Girl Friday, is popularly known, you even said it yourself that you'd never seen this movie. I think you know that it was a movie, which I can't say that many people would necessarily know offhand, but they know the phrasing, I guess. So where does that exactly come down? Even though this movie is in the public domain because the copyright has not been renewed and that's why it's widely available everywhere, I just don't know how many people have seen this. And so I think it's a movie that, unless you're an industry person, unless you're one of us, a cinephile, it's been mostly lost to history at this point for the general audience. So I'll go a 4.5 for the industry because I don't think that it's on the top tier of things. And I will go a 1.5 for the audience for knowing the phrase, but not necessarily knowing where it is or having seen the movie. That's a six for me. Well, we're almost dead on. I have 4.5 for industry, which is, again, exactly what you commented. I mean, this film influenced a lot of directors. I know that Tarantino said this is one of his favorite, or was his favorite film, and there were some techniques that were utilized, one of which was called shot, reverse shot, where you take the camera and you line it up so that it appears like one camera, you're looking at at one character and then the other camera is responding to them so that it looks like it's in a direct line, like you're the character looking back and forth. That was done a few times in this and it was one of the first times it was ever done. But for the public, I'm going to give it a one because, yeah, it's readily available, but I, I don't think a lot of people are familiar with the film. We're talking about a film that's 80 two years old, and other than the fact that Cary Grant's in it, I don't think a lot of people of even my generation are going to remember it. They don't remember Rosalind Russell. They're going to remember Ralph Bellamy from Pretty Woman and from Trading Places, and that's going to be the extent of it, and otherwise this is something that almost is lost. So I went with a 1, so I I gave it a 5.5. See, you say that, and I had no idea that Ralph Bellamy was in this movie and in Pretty Woman. Yes, he was the uh, owner that of the company that Richard Gere is trying to buy. No idea. He had a resurgent in his career as uh, in his late 70s and early 80s. He was also in Cocoon. Oh, 
Okay. Never would have made the guess or the linkage. Impact significance. So the critics loved the movie and it was an instant hit. However, it garnered absolutely no awards attention at a time where box office receipts and generally good critic reviews pretty much made you on the award circuit. And this really didn't do anything to promote the careers of any of its stars. I don't really remember Rosalind Russell doing anything else. And I'm not familiar with Ralph Bellamy from any other major movies. I'm sure he did plenty of them or both of them did plenty of them. I just haven't seen any of them or probably heard of any of them. And obviously, Cary Grant was already somewhat a star at this point, And he was probably more promoted by the fact that I think he was, I no, excuse me, he was not nominated for the Philadelphia story, but he was in that movie, which was one of the biggest movies of that year. So I just don't know how much this did to really place any of its stars, move the ball forward in any major way. And again, while it did place the idiom His Girl Friday into the American lexicon, we said before that Girl Friday is a definition term and was because primarily of this movie. I just don't think it rises up to the top of the audience list for the time by comparison to some of its peers. So I went with a four for the industry and I did a three for the audience for a seven total. I had a little higher. Um, part of the reason, I think, uh, having studied some of the early studio operations, management, such, there were a lot of people uh, in the academy who hated Harry Cohn, who owned the studio, and would not give recognition to awards from his studio simply because they hated him so much. He was considered one of the biggest bullies in Hollywood. And I think that I'm going to give it some leeway from the industry for that. But it had such an influence, I think, in the short term. I think it did help propel Howard Hawks into a decade or almost two decades as a significant director who could go from comedy to drama and back again without missing a beat. And that was always on the cutting edge of applying technology and doing techniques or tactics that were unique and different to make each of his films more special as they were released. So I'm on the 4.5 for the industry. And for the public, I gave it a four because it was popular, but I don't think the, I think the popularity started to wane. Considering this is on the cusp of World War II, I think a lot of comedies from that time frame just got lost in the public's consciousness uh, within that five-year period because of the seriousness of the world events around it. So I should mention that Harry Cohn is one of the co-founders of Columbia Pictures, which is still current or still existing. And he did produce It Happened One Night, which happened to win just about every major award that year. And that's not that far removed from this, about six years. Correct. But like I said, it's about this time where he was, I'm trying to remember who it was that was uh, offered the part and she refused it. So he sued her or fired her for not taking the part because she was under contract and he told her to and ended up in some protracted litigation. I want to say that Carol Lombard had been tied to 
Columbia as well. And she was one of the first actresses to go free agent when her contract expired and thumbed her nose because of the control from Harry Cohen. So I think things deteriorated rapidly around Hollywood between it happened one night and this film and going into the 40s. So that was a 7.75 for that category. I forgot to give the average from Legacy. That was a 5.75. Novelty? This was difficult because there was a lot of special camera and audio techniques used. It was unique in how it was shot and how it was re- the sound was recorded. But it's a remake of a play that had already been made into a film. And this was not the first time that the issue of a screwball comedy involving a husband and wife and a triangle such as this and newspapers was used. So there's a level of novelty that you have to take down for that. So I kind of split it up a little bit and I went with a 7.5 simply because of the directing of Hawk and how the screenplay was, was written. I should add that making the uh, one of the leads female and making her as strong as she was in the, in the situation was a uh, fresh approach. So that's part of where I was going to go. I don't think there are too many of my points that you haven't hit. I specifically would highlight the sound mixing, the fast dialogue, the microphone usage. You mentioned the cinematography was notable for the time. I also would put the placing of a female reporter at the front and center of news coverage and being the star reporter, not just like some back burner or a secretary or something. No, this person is at the top of their industry in 1940, is bold for the time. And you and I bicker on this just about almost on a weekly basis from adapted screenplay movies, essentially that I don't necessarily give them points because it's an ad- or points down because it's a multiple time adapted work. If you change enough of it, if you make it your own, if you put a unique spin on it, that's good enough for me when you're dealing with some of this material because there are things like The Godfather is different and unique from the book that it was taken from. Likewise, I think this is different by placing a female character at the top of the movie as opposed to the male male camaraderie that it is from the stage play. I think it's an entirely different tone, attitude, and highlights a lot of different dynamics between men and women comparatively, even though it's a ex-husband and ex-wife that eventually decide to get back together, of course. But I think that the novelty is a little bit higher. And so... While it's not the most audacious of movies, I do think it gets some pretty significant daring points for all of the things that we've mentioned. I went with a 9. So that's an 8.25 between us. Okay, you don't need help with the math, all right. Nope, just needed a pause a second to basically add it up in my head. Okay. Classicness, your category. Strong female lead. I mean, there were females in the newsroom. There was a a secondary female that had a significant part. The only thing I could give it down to is the fact that, I mean, the idea that you would have somebody pick up a woman and carry her off, that to me 
was points down because you just can't do that anymore. And how you dealt with her, which is she was annoying, so just we're just going to physically remove her. So to that, I went down to an 8.5. So I think this is one of those that it's not egregious enough as a maneuver for me to necessarily give it points down. I think that people understand this is an 82-year-old movie and that that was something you could do up until maybe like 20 years ago. And it has a comedic element to it that seems somewhat timeless yet. And so you can kind of remove yourself. It's not like an old-timey racist thing where you can just laugh it off. No, this is one of those that, yeah, we don't behave like that anymore, but it seems somewhat innocent by comparative to a lot of the things that just don't age well. And so I think I'll give it a little bit of a pass on that one. The one thing I came across in my research is I think the name Stairway Sam was used one time where apparently one of the reporters, and it's a very small bit of the movie, but you'd have to watch it back because I didn't notice this the first time, is apparently walking or uh, watching up the stairs to peek up women's skirts. (laughs) And this is boldly shown during the course of the movie. Now, okay, does he have a kink that uh, apparently would not be acceptable by normal standards? Absolutely. How much can I grade down for that? I don't know because I also don't want to be on the other foot and kink shame, which is its own thing. So all I will say is, is I think I have to go for roughly a 9.5. I'm very tempted to go the full 10 on this one because it's a seemingly innocent film. It seems timeless. It's got a major movie star that his name still has meaning to the general American public. So I will go with a 9.5. That'll be a 9 between us. And just as an aside... I was in junior high school, and I found a book on baseball that I'd never heard of called Ball Four by Jim Boughton, who had pitched for the Seattle Pilots, which became the Milwaukee Brewers. And he kind of ripped the bandage off of the uh, uh, of baseball, and they talked about how players would run under the bleachers and look up women's skirts, trying to see things, and if they found something unique they would all be rushing over and the hijinks that took place so this is happening even into the 60s and the early 70s it's still happening now there are guys that are specifically filming and going out in public and figuring out how to do upskirt cams (laughs) okay yeah it's not my thing by any stretch but can i really kink shame Not really. I just think it is a violation of privacy, but I don't know. It's a difficult thing for me to necessarily put too forward an opinion on, let's say, since it's not happening to me. And realistically, I don't wear skirts, So, but if I did, I don't think anybody's wanting to peek underneath them. So let's move forward. Rewatchability. I went with a 9.5. Having watched the film, it's light. You know, other than the fact that rapid-paced dialogue, which you really don't even have to listen to to get most of it. 
it's almost like speed reading. You can pick up enough of the dialogue without paying that close of attention and get the meaning of what's going on. And if you're really tired and you're just kind of vegging out, just put on the closed caption. <laughs> you can read it. it. It's a little slower than speaking it. So I could see this being something that I throw on when we're not quite sure what we want to do and we're tired. Just want to do something for an hour and a half or so before we get ready for, to go to bed type of situation. If I didn't give the number, I said 9.5. No, I got your number. So how do I put this? Your notion of putting on the closed caption is folly. I always have the closed caption on because that way I can pick up new things that I didn't hear right the first time or whatever else. And I just simply have it on all the time whenever I have any scripted programming on whatsoever. The only time I turn it off is when there's like live events or sports or whatever else is going on. And it's just kind of annoying to watch it because it's like seven seconds delayed. Anyway, you cannot read this movie. It is too flippin' fast. It's just impossible. I'll just throw that one out right now. That being said, despite its quick pace and its dialogue and the rest of it, I found this movie to be really slow. Okay. I think it takes a lot of time for this movie to set up. I think the first half an hour, at least, is just kind of bumbling. And it really doesn't get into its true action until probably... 45 to 50 minutes in, and it's a 90-minute film. And so I had a little bit of a difficult time. I've had more fun discussing the movie and going through some of the quotes, but I didn't laugh at this movie when it was on at all. It just didn't tickle me almost nearly as much as reading back some of the quotes did. It just didn't have the same rhythm or comedic timing that maybe I'm, again, being a comedy snob, but it, it just didn't appeal to me. And so because of the discussion, I'll add an extra point. I was originally going to go with a five. I'll go with a six. But this is just not something that I really care that much about. Maybe it's more generational. And that's very possible. I think it's closer to what you grew up with as far as humor-wise. And thus, I don't know. I Maybe me growing up with you watching Frasier all the time has got my sarcastic bone too refined to a modern sensibility by comparison. <laughs> yeah, okay. Kelsey Grammer, who attends the Rutgers football games. So that's a 7.75 between the two of us. Audience score for this one, oddly enough, it had some very positive audience scores with an 87% for Google and a 90% for Rotten Tomatoes. So apparently people do like this movie. They're just not necessarily me. So that's an 8.85 on the average for that one. So to repeat the categories, it's a 5.75 for Legacy, 7.75 for Impact Significance, 8.25 for Novelty, a 9 for Classicness, 7.75 for Rewatchability, and an 8.85 for Audience Score, giving us a final total of 47.35. And that would currently place it on our list. Tied with Major League and A Night at the Opera. Oh. Okay. Yeah, it's about middle of the list right now. Okay. Just between The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance and The Grand Budapest Hotel. Okay. All right. Remaining questions. 
Well, we, I was just going to say, we certainly have a wide variation of movie styles here. So That is for sure. Remaining questions, did you have any? No, not really. I think that being based on a play, they usually like to wrap everything in a neat bow, but I do have a couple. One has to do with the kind of resolution of the movie, but I'll start with this one. What exactly is the outcome of the Earl Williams case? So if this can be influenced by politics and the reprieve comes from the governor, but the sheriff and the mayor clearly want it for different political reasons that they want to see him dead. I don't think this is a case that necessarily just goes away because one reprieve letter came in. Okay, I understand your point, but I don't think it matters because this is a story about the reporters and they don't care. They just want the story. They don't care what the outcome of the story is. Just is it a good story? He's trying to pressure the governor into giving the reprieve. Because it'll sell more newspapers because he can then claim I'm the one who accomplished this and write an op-ed piece and sell more papers. Don't, don't believe anything that's being done in this, especially by Walter, Cary Grant's character, is altruistic. Well, I don't, but that's not really the point. I'm still curious what would be the outcome of the case. All of this would come in. His escape, his hiding... It's potentially going to be admissible. I don't know. It depends on who they have for lawyers. I don't know what the evidence is. Based on what we have for information, there's no way you can tell. All right. So then the second question, why would Molly go to such an extreme step like a suicide attempt to save Earl? She jumps out a window. You're trying to put rationality into individuals or characters that lack rationality. I mean, I read medical records all day long, and you're like, you're, you're kind of puzzled by people's behavior until you realize that sometimes people's behavior lacks any level of logic or rationality. So both of these have teed up for you, and you're like, this is an irrelevant question. Let me just buzz by it. It's not even like play with the question at all. Well, I don't know what to say other than the fact that I, I I don't understand it, and I don't necessarily think anybody would understand it. She did it. Okay, the easy answer for this one would be she fell in love with a murderer who's on death row. What is rational about that? Well, yeah, but that happens all the time. I mean, how many pen pals did Ted Bundy have? I don't know. Oh, if you've watched any specials or any kind of documentary, Ted Bundy. He had like groupies. I, I don't watch any of this true crime crap. I know that the new Jeffrey Dahmer series on Netflix is like the second most watched English speaking Netflix series ever, but I have no interest in seeing that at all. Well, when you have basically someone who uh, lives in your house who's like a um, true crime enthusiast aficionado and has watched the television show bones from start to finish what 15 15 15 times yeah and convinces your mother to sit and watch all of these uh shows about 
setting up the special unit in the FBI for serial killers and studying serial killers and all this. Yeah, um, I'm not into a lot about serial killers and such. I've often meant that I uh, was going, at some point in time, if I had to have a Halloween costume, I was going to just have a fake knife and a sweatshirt covered with Cheerios, and I'll be a serial killer. Oh, God. All right, I'll try and engage you on one last one here. Was Hildy ever actually going to marry Bruce? Well, of course, because ultimately that's, it's all tied together. She can't. You would think so for 95% of the movie, and then the last five minutes upends the entire notion of what you think you've known for the course of the movie. She bought into a way of life. She didn't want to accept the way things were, so she separates herself and is going to go a completely different direction in life, then realizes this is not what she really wants. She goes back to the original life in the newsroom, being a reporter, and she's going to end up going back to the same situation as far as her marital relationship and her relationship with Walter. I don't know. When a woman is upset because you're letting her go, to me that just says, and again, we discussed it at the outset, and you said you disagreed with me, but that really what she was looking for was his attention. I don't know. And I've made this comment before and I'll say it now is I don't understand women (laughs) and I don't want to understand women because my theory is that God has created a situation where men are oblivious as to what women are thinking. And once you understand women, it takes years and years, which is why old men die is they finally figure out women, then God's got to take them because they have to keep that mystery going for generations. And a heart attack is a sudden revelation where, oh, I understand. And then God has to take you then. But if you survive the heart attack, usually the heart attack has knocked the memory out of you. So when you come to, you don't remember that revelation and that's how you survive. So what's a stroke then? Maybe it's uh, an acceptance that you may now kind of understand women, but you just don't have the physical wherewithal to do anything about it. Okay. (laughs) All right. Final thoughts for the week. I really don't have any. I mean, we're pushing into October now. We're half more than halfway through the month. And uh, (laughs) I was just commenting tonight at a school board meeting that I had to chair that we're basically eight weeks, 40 days away from Christmas. Maybe it's uh, 50 days away from Christmas. I was going to say that's a little too soon. 25 plus 30 for November, and then whatever's left in October, which depending on when you're listening to this episode, just add that in, but that's at least 55. So we're talking it's at least 60 to 70 days probably for most people when they hear this. Yeah, well, I know, but I mean, it's still, the year is moving by rapidly. We have a lot on our schedule, and we're already planning into next year for season four. Yeah, we already have a guest scheduled for March. I'm trying to work on a guest uh, myself for uh, next year as well. Well, 
just understand where the calendar is and the commitments we have, because I think we have a guest every week from like the middle of January through the middle of March already. Wow. With the exception being our 150th episode where we do one of the bigger movies ourselves. Yes. I'm still waiting for a show that uh, you were supposed to be doing for your uh, lost bet. I mean, I would hope that we'd have it done and available before the next Academy Award show. Well, yes, I have to have paid it up by that point. The Academy Awards is not out until, I think, March this next year. So I have some time. The difficulty is I had started to prepare my notes. I had watched the movie. I hadn't done the episode. And so at this point, it's almost several months past when I had originally intended to do it, but got busy with things that I think for the most part, I probably end up having to watch it a second time, which to you is just great fun, I'm sure. Oh, yes. Yes. I watched five minutes of it. I put it on the big screen in the conference room with your mother and grandmother and sister sitting there. We were having lunch. We watched five minutes, and I had three looks that looked like Edvard Munch. Um, scream? Edvard Munch. Munch, yes. Excuse me. Edvard Munch picture of Scream where it's like, Ugh, because they're like, what the hell is this? And I said, this is what Tom has to watch and do a show on. Oh, okay. Well, good for him. Yeah. I just hope I win this next year. Oh, yes. I'm sure you do. Let's see here. Biodome or the birth of a nation? <laughs> you would almost rather watch birth of a nation. God. Oh, the thing is, I've gone back and forth whether we need to do that on the show at one time or another. It was extremely influential, but... Okay. I know. I know. To be perfectly honest, and I'm going to say this, and I may get a lot of pushback from people who are listening, but I am not at all looking forward to Gone with the Wind. As somebody who's a Civil War historian... That movie just, I, I think I enjoyed my colonoscopy more than the time I had to watch that film. I liked it, but okay. I understand your reticence. There's just so much about it that's just rewriting of history to make it look romantic. And to, to put a, it's putting lipstick on a pig. Everyone is the hero of their own story. Yeah. Anyway, for my, my final thoughts for the week, much different. We've recently gotten the second season debut of Abbott Elementary, a show that I was a little bit on the fence about. I wasn't sure if I liked it, if I didn't like it, and where to go with it. I think they've had a fairly good start to the second season where most of these sitcoms, I think you're expecting them to kind of make a small leap. They tweak the characters a little bit. They have a little bit more concise writing. They introduce a few new characters to give some more foils to the primary revolving few. And I think that they've made some significant jumps in the first couple of episodes. Again, if I've said it before on here, I don't remember. But I think the janitor character from that particular show is one of the best characters currently on TV. 
he just tickles my sensibilities. But uh, I would highly suggest for anybody that likes a fairly family-friendly show that has a good endearing quality to it and is very much about a place, it's set in Philadelphia. And while I have some of my reservations about Philadelphia and people from Philadelphia, it's very much a love letter to that community. And so I can't really complain about that. Well, I'm sure if we have any listeners in Philadelphia... They snowballed Santa. Those are fighting words, which apparently anything is a fighting word in Philadelphia. Yes. But don't worry, we have Rocky coming up for you here again in a couple of weeks. More specifically, Rocky 2. So you'll get your cult hero. Yeah, it's probably one of the more lame of the Rocky films. Uh, Rocky 5? Yeah, well... I don't even want to acknowledge that. All right, that'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special? Nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. Next week, we will be discussing the third film in our journalism month with Network from 1976, directed by Sidney Lumet, written by Petty Chayevsky, and starring Faye Dunaway, Peter Finch, William Holden, and Ned Beatty. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnieduncanstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter, find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.